Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Charles Postal on the show, and we'll be discussing his prize-winning book, The Populist Vision. I knew nothing about the populist before I talked to Charles. I, like many people, assumed that they were a kind of retrogressive agricultural movement. That's really kind of what you learn in high school in the United States. Boy, was I wrong. Charles points out that they were very progressive in many ways. They favored market rationalization and labor organization and welfare and women's emancipation and a host of other things which we now label as progressive. They were sort of the pre-progressives, progressives before the progressive era, you might call them. I enjoyed talking to Charles today about the populace, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Charles. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Well. You're in um, sunny California, is that correct? That's right. Is it actually sunny? It is sunny, and it's cool, and, and uh, there's a nice sea breeze coming off the Pacific. That's very nice. Yeah, no, that's the, you're in San Francisco then. Uh, well, I'm actually in Berkeley. Oh, in Berkeley. Right. No, you told me that already. You know, I'm yeah. kind of dense. I should tell our listeners that uh, not only am I dense, but we have Charles Postal on the show today, and we'll be talking about his much-acclaimed new book, The Populist Vision, won a big prize. Uh, and does it have a subtitle? No, that's it. That's no subtitle. That's amazing. We should that's talk about that for a second. Because, well, no, I mean, all, all books, all, all history books have to have subtitles. Subtitles, that's usually where they tell you what it's about after they say something clever. Um, so in any event, let me ask you, Charles, uh, to tell us a little bit about yourself. It's kind of where you grew up and where you went to school and that sort of thing. Well, I was born in Boston. I didn't do very well in school. I didn't make it past the 10th grade, and really past the 9th grade, and dropped out and uh, moved gradually westward. Ended up in Detroit and Chicago and then eventually in Oakland. And along the way, I raised a family, had various odd jobs, farm work, construction work. I was a window washer in Chicago for a while, foundry work. Uh, and it became pretty clear to me that, that the, the new economy of globalization and technological revolutions and was, was going to change that, that lifestyle, and I went back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, after 20 years, I went to commu- a local community college and transferred to UC Berkeley and got my BA there and got my PhD at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but that's actually that is a kind of compelling story. So you you really um, uh, came from a, quite a non-academic background. Yeah, when I went, I I, I was at a dead end job, and I said I, I wanted to go to Berkeley, and I went up to the campus there and asked them how do you get in, and asked for transcripts <laughs> and SAT scores, and and I didn't have a clue what they were. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, no, I I don't I don't think they should ask for transcripts and SAT scores. I think they should yeah. take people that come to the door and ask if they want to come in. That's but, it, it, that, well, actually, the truth is that they did. They let me in. So yeah, that well, was very good. nice. Well, they were smart to do so. I yeah. Think, yeah. I mean, about 
you know, about 99% of life is effort. So just showing up at the door and saying you want to come, that, that, that yeah. does it for me. Um, so, yeah, that, that's very interesting. You worked, you worked as, a, as a window washer. I worked as a window washer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. That's a good job. Do you ever have any time in a sawmill? I worked in a sawmill for a while. No, I never did No, that. but the foundry work, you said. Yes. That's, that must have been rough. Um, yeah. I can tell you the sawmill was rough. Um, so who did you work with at Berkeley? Well, uh, my lead advisor was Leon Litwack in the history department. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked also with Michael Rogan in political science, mm-hmm. uh, Robin Einhorn in the political in, in the history department, and uh, I, I worked I worked for Leon Litvak a, a long time ago, a really long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I was his reader. He yeah, was a, I, he was he was the first person that I'd ever uh, heard before he gave a lecture. He'd say it's copyrighted. Does he still do that? <laughs> <laughs> he'd say this is copyrighted. You can't uh, your notes or you can't sell your notes. I thought, yeah. I thought that really shocked me at the time. I didn't know anybody cared enough to copyright the notes to lectures, but Leon apparently did. He 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 taught that lecture course for for uh, some thirty thousand students took that course. Holy cow! That's and a, that's uh, a lot of people. And yeah. he spent a great deal of effort. I'm sure he did making sure those lectures were the way he wanted. Yeah, to do. I bet he did. The um, the not that all of us don't do that. Of course yeah. we do. Uh, the the book, how did you come to write this book? Was it your dissertation, or was it essentially based on your dissertation? It's based on the dissertation. It's an expanded, refashioned version of the dis- dissertation. But mm-hmm. I guess what, what drew me to the topic was I was interested in how ordinary people respond to economic change. I witnessed the collapse of the auto industry in Detroit the, the first time. That was in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I guess it's even collapsed further this time. Uh, I was influenced by the dot-com boom and bust in the, uh, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And so I think what draw, draw, drew me to this topic was my interest in globalization and technological revolutions and corporate power and mm-hmm. economic inequality, mm-hmm. uh, but in the context not of the 21st century, but the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And that's what my book is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a terrific book it is. Uh, Let's um, begin a discussion of it then, and let's begin it in the most general way, because as the listeners to this podcast will know, I am not an American historian, which peculiarly enough is often an advantage when interviewing American historians, because I ask the questions that the listeners uh, want asked. And so my first question is, who exactly are the populists? We don't have a populist party anymore, but apparently we did. Um, What were they about and where did they come from? The original populist, where we get the name of populist in American political language, is from a reform movement uh, of the 1880s and 90s. It's actually a, a coalition of reform organizations, farmers' organizations, labor organizations, uh, middle-class activists, women's rights groups, came together and formed a, a Congress of Industrial Orders, uh, a coalition that that was the foundation of what becomes the People's Party, which is also known as the Populist Party of the early 1890s, of, and which continued to be an important presence uh, through the 1890s. It, in fact, the most important third-party movement in the history of the United States after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a movement targeting corporate power mm-hmm. and for... Uh, an alternative vision of 
how American capitalism could work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me ask a couple of more broad questions, or broader questions, I guess one says. Uh, be, being from Kansas myself, which I learned in your book was a hotbed of populism, oh, yeah. I, I, um, I knew about, when I was growing up, I knew about the Grange movement. But I, I didn't really know anything about the population movement. What is a populist movement? What is the what is the uh, what is the relationship between the Grange movement? I wanted you to explain what that was and populism. Well, the Grange movement is frequently connected with populism in our in our high school textbooks. So I figure you got that out of your high school yeah. textbook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the Grange movement, <clears throat> the Grange movement um, uh, is had its strength in the 1870s, and it was it was found is many eastern farmers were involved in the Grange, and it was for railroad regulations and other things helpful to farmers. It's not directly connected to populism, and a different set of reform movements built the populist movement. And the biggest of those was something called the Farmers' Alliance. Mm -hmm. The Farmers' Alliance had about 1.5 million members by 1891. Uh, it was centered in the south, but it spread to, the, to Kansas and to California. Uh, and it was a, a very dynamic and powerful uh, rural organization. Mm -hmm. It focused on rural education. It believed that knowledge is power. If, if ordinary people could understand how the world worked, how economy worked, finances worked, government worked, ordinary people could seize the levers of those mechanisms and shape a world that was more just and more fair to them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the Kansas Farmers Alliance became a powerful force, and it was the main group, along with the Knights of Labor and other groups in Kansas, that forms the Kansas People's Party, which became mm -hmm. uh, sort of the pace setter for the National People's Party. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons that we, we uh, people, us Midwesterners, so think about the Grange is there are Grange halls all over the place. That's right. I the know Grange, the Grangers were big builders of halls. I, that's right. And the Grange still exists. We, we still see the Grange, and, and many rural people still go to Granges for, for barbecues and I've other been things. to many Grange, events at Grange halls. I've never been to a, I don't think yep. I've ever been to a Granger event. So uh, one of the things that I, I remember learning, this was undoubtedly in high school, is that the, the, um, the Grangers, or whatever they were called, were um, somehow influenced by European socialism. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it, it does strike me there's interesting parallelism between... Um, uh, the populace, who you say, and we'll come back to this moment in a second, were very progressive and very modern, and the Euro and European socialist movements, uh, who were also very progressive and th thought to be very modern. Was there any was there any interchange between um, the, the populace and, and these European socialist parties? Well, that's a a little bit of a complicated question. On one hand, there was a, an important urban and labor element in American populism, especially in the mm -hmm. upper Midwest and places like uh, Wisconsin or mm -hmm. Illinois. There's a lot of, uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, urban activists, and some, many of those were socialists. So mm -hmm. there was a, a socialist wing of the populist coalition. I think that most populists, especially in the South and the West, did not directly correspond to European socialism, but they responded to other things going on in Europe. Uh, they were not necessarily socialist. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, many of them admired the Bismarck, Bismarck's reforms in Germany, for example, uh, the, uh, whether it was his insurance programs, his pension programs. They liked the statism 
of European development, whether it's socialist or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the, the nationalized railways of Europe, the American farmers looked at that and said, boy, if we could only have that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like the debates about health insurance these days mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know, wow, there's a better way of doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's an, it's an interesting parallel, and it's one that occurred to me while I was uh, re reading the book. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the historiographical context, because uh, I, I don't know if I can, I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything, but one of the theses of the book is that our view, that is the view given to us by prior historians of the populists, uh, of the populists, is somewhat distorted, that they were thought to be reactionary in some way. Um, but you say, uh, quite convincingly, I might add, that they were in fact, um, uh, they were in fact sort of on the, what was thought to be the, the cutting edge of political reform. Um, uh, could you talk a little bit about or help me understand the, the prior historiography and the way in which your um, version of events alters it? The prior historiography worked something like this. Historians disagreed about whether populism was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, in the early 20th century, people generally thought the populists were a good uh, democratic reform movement that was a positive development in American political life. In the mid-century, historians like Richard Hofstetter at Columbia University and, and other mid-century historians concerned about uh, fascism in Europe and the, and, and, the, and the dangers of totalitarian movements became concerned about were the roots of such things in America and looked to the populace as possibly a anti-Semitic reactionary movement. <clears throat> um, many scholars disagreed with Hofstetter and in the 1970s and 80s you had excellent scholarship that said, well, wait a second, actually these people were uh, democratic-minded and, and were looking for a more just society and basically restored their democratic credentials. But what all these historians had in common was an acceptance of the idea that populism represented the tradition-bound farmer defending himself against the inroads of modernity or mm -hmm. the inroads of the marketplace. And they're, they're trying to protect the old traditional community church and way of life. Mm -hmm. What's different about my book is that it says actually the farmers were, the, farm, the, the populace were on the cutting edge of rural modernization. They were rural modernizers. Uh, the reason why they attracted so many women to their movement, that was one of the biggest women's movement in the history of the United States up until that time, or the largest in the history of the United States up to that time. So they offered women a more modern life. They wanted women to get education, to go to university, to, to find uh, new employments and the new technologies uh, uh, as, as in, in the telegraph office or other technologies. It was a modernizing movement. Uh, down the line, and that shifts our thinking about it. Maybe one way to think about it is that in our textbooks, we oftentimes think of, uh, the populists are oftentimes described as protesting the new big institutions in American life, like the railroads and the banks, 
they didn't like the bigness because they wanted to protect the small proprietor, mm-hmm. the traditional proprietor. But if you look at what the populace actually stood for and not what they were against, you get a very different picture. Their model institution was the post office. They thought the post office was the greatest thing in American society. And it's also the biggest and most modern bureaucracy in American society in the late 19th century Mm -hmm. because it provided uh, cheap, efficient, and equal service. And it's that type of institution that they considered modern and, and cutting edge, which was you know, right in their, that's their model mm-hmm. of the future. Mm-hmm. And I would, I, I, people, people today deride the post office, and I always point out, well, look at how your Netflix is delivered. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. That's, that's, that's a very good popular, point. That's a good that's point. T- yeah, yeah I, Netflix is the cutting edge technology out of yeah. Silicon Valley. Right. And it comes to you by the post office because yeah. it's cheap and efficient. Yeah. And it's that type of insight that the populace had uh, and pursued. Yeah. So the, was the uh, contention that they were somehow retrogressive or or, or uh, anti-modern? Was it was it simply built on 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 the fact that they were farmers and farmers are inherently anti-modern and 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 that they uh, that that they were kind of uh, I don't know that they were vaguely kind of statist in their orientation. Was is that the reason Hofstetter and these guys thought that? Well, the anti-modern label actually comes from the from the 1890s. Uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, the great American historian out of Wisconsin, he described the populace in 1893 as not being able to deal with modern uh, developments. And that comes from, my view, where that comes from is if you look at the corporate culture in the United States, much of which was adopted by the academic culture, American corporate leaders made exclusive claims on who was modern and who was not. Uh, their model of laissez-faire capitalism, which is now known as the free market capitalism, was considered the only model of modernity. And anything that opposed it or criticized it was considered primitive or, or utopian or foolish, mm-hmm. anti-modern. Mm-hmm. And so they made exclusive claims that their particular model was modernity. And this stuck. This claim stuck. And and I think it resonates today if you look at, for example, the deregulation of the banking industry that took place over the last 10 years. The deregulators claimed, we are advocates of modernity. It's called the, it's called the uh, 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 Financial Services Modernization Act of, of 1999. It's what deregulated the banking industry and sent the American banks over the cliff. Mm-hmm. But the congressman pursuing this did it in the name of, we are for modernization. And I think that is something that's stuck to the populace ever since. Yeah, I think it's stuck in the American context. So, I mean, yeah. I, I can say with some confidence that in the European context at this very time, uh, it was uh, coming unstuck. Uh, because the people who kind of grasp modernism, at least as far as I know, in in Europe, that is both Western, Central, and Eastern, were uh, in fact socialists uh, who, right. who were very much in favor of um, exerting government control over um, large uh, corporate enterprises. That was um, more or less their raison d'être. It is interesting in the American case that, that um, 
that that did not occur, but that's an entirely different right. discussion. But I, I, I agree with you completely that it, it, it did not occur. Americans are very uncomfortable with um, yes. the notion of extending government power to various things. I mean, as we can see in the health care uh, yes. healthcare, um, debate. But the, the, the um, populists were in favor of, of for example, extending um, government control over the telegraph and the railroad and... Um, I don't know what else. What else did they believe credit. should be credit? credit. Yeah, uh-huh. credit, so banking and and financial credit. And they, and here, interestingly, they did look to Europe as models. Uh, the French National Bank they considered a model of mm-hmm. how to extend credit down to the grassroots mm-hmm. uh, by centralizing it with great force in in the national capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Let's, that brings me to a topic that I uh, told you in the pre-interview I wanted to discuss because uh, it is um, so mysterious to me. They were, um, they were huge opponents of the gold standard. Is that correct? That's true. Yes, and they were proponents of, 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 of green backery or something like that. And, That's true. And, and, the, and, the, and, and perhaps even the silver Standard. What can you explain uh, uh, this in, to a general audience? Because it's mysterious to me. I I've never tried to take my greenbacks in and exchange them for any metal, <laughs> and I doubt I'd have very much yes. luck doing it. Yes. Well, this is this is not a simple topic, but I'll try and make it as simple. I should say, after the Civil War, the, uh, uh, the United States was on the gold standard, and that is, you know, the the the, the currency is supposed to be attached to a given quantity of gold. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a context when there's a general deflation in the 1880s and 90s. There's a general deflation in prices. Prices of everything are going down. Uh, and in the, in the economic crisis of the 1890s, it's called, it was called a depression because of the spiraling downward of prices. Hmm. That's what depression means. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where we get the word. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the debates about the present financial crisis, a depression in prices is like the that is the economic killer that, for example, the stimulus package is supposed to prevent. Mm-hmm. But this is a lesson learned in the 1890s and then the 1930s that that when there's general decline in prices, no one invests, and it's and it takes a tremendous toll on the population. Mm-hmm. Now, farmers believed, the populace believed, that a moderate inflation of the currency would be great for farmers. And there's, a, there's two reasons for that. Well, there are three reasons for that. The first reason is as people who are, who are producing for the market, uh, if they could get the, the bushel of wheat the prices of that to rise by inflating the currency, that would be favorable. That would inf- inflate their prices. They would get more on the market. Uh, second, as people who own mortgages on farm machinery and on farms, a, a small degree of inflation would take the sting out of the cost of, of credit. Mm-hmm. Credit was expensive. But we, we don't think of it today, but if you have a fixed-rate mortgage, you know, a 2 or 3% infl- rate of inflation would make your, your mortgage very cheap. Charles, i got to tell you, I think about that every single day. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but in, in, our, in our political culture, we just say, oh, inflation bad, right? 
not me. Okay. <laughs> I'm really okay, leveraged. So- I need inflation. <laughs> I'm, I'm banking on inflation. Okay, so that's an interesting thing to think about. But in those days, like much conservatives, much like us today, thought you know inflation would send the country to hell. Uh, that that would be the end of American civilization if you got off the gold standard uh, and started printing money or coining silver. So the populace wanted to print money and coin silver, print greenbacks and coin silver, get off the gold standard in order to reduce the cost of mortgages and, and credit and to raise the prices of farm goods. But they also had another insight that it would stimulate the economy and get the economy out of a depression, which is a very modern concept uh, and, and I think a, a, a useful thing to think about. So that was, that was the key thing. And the other thing to think about is that the corporate establishment and virtually every university-based economist and social scientist believe that taking America off the gold standard would, would destroy the civilization. That would be the end of the United States. So this was considered craziness on the part of the populace. But, of course, we now have flexible currency. We're no longer in the gold standard. And mm-hmm. Basically, the, the populist proposals on these things all, all won out eventually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they were not uh, convincing at the time. People simply couldn't wrap their mind around the <clears throat> idea that their money was just paper. Well, bankers didn't, couldn't stand it because they knew that if the price of credit went down. Yeah, it's bad for them. Very bad. It's bad for them. Yeah. So there's a coalition, a coalescence between their interest and their ideology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I by the way, do not wish ill on the people that lent me the money when I hope for inflation. But still, I, <laughs> right. I, yeah. they're nice folks. I, they're in my community. I really like them. But, you know, yeah. I'm hoping for a little more inflation that we've had recently. So my uh, right. the cost of my mortgage goes down a little bit. Um, yeah. So the... Uh, the populists turned out to be, on, on closer inspection, uh, much more progressive uh, in, in these relatively narrow senses uh, than um, we had thought. Uh, but there, there were other ways, and, and I, I think it's a great virtue of your book uh, that you point this out. There were other ways in which they were um, creatures of their time. And, and here I'm thinking of their attitudes on race. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, they... they, they, they... The fact that they were modern, I don't think means that they were necessarily good. And I don't put an equation between, an equal sign between modern Mm -hmm. and good, because some modern wasn't good. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think on the question of race, one way to think about it is historically, people have looked to the populace as, as something of a break from the very dismal race relations of the late 19th century. Mm that the populace offered the opportunity of black and white poor farmers of the South to unite against economic tyranny. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it's been told for a long time. And one of the things that my book does is is it challenges that. And it says, you know what? The white populace was was determined to have white supremacy and segregation as the white Democrats were. Of mm-hmm. course, the Democrats were the controlling party in the American South at that time. Mm-hmm. And I really don't think there's any real difference between the white populace and the white Democrats and the fundamentals of that. Mm-hmm. And there are two important things to think about that, is that the populace thought that, for example, enacting segregation laws was 
an act of modernizing the South. That, for example, new technologies such as new means of communication such as railroads were, were new to many communities in the South and unregulated. A black and a white could get onto the railroad by get onto the train by paying their ticket and sit together. Uh, and to what to white populace, this did not look what they considered modern. Modern would be a strict segregation of the races by, according to modern science, they, these races are unequal, and how modern business practices were for segregation. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. We don't think of it in those terms. Uh, we think of racism as, as backward and segregation as something backward. But in the 1890s, before or the 1890, before the segregation laws, it was people who considered themselves modern, progressive, forward-looking people were enacting those laws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's an tr- absolutely terrific point. I, I think it's a hard one for many, particularly Americans, to understand, particularly slippage on the, this word itself, racism, which at the end of the 19th century and even into the 20th century could in many contexts seem progressive and very reasonable, uh, especially in the sense that uh, people thought they really believed and the science as it existed to some extent supported them that the races would be both better off if they were segregated. Uh, this is very hard for us to wrap our mind around that anyone would believe such a thing. Right. Uh, but there were hordes of people that 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 this that that believed this was was just true on its face, and so right. it, it doesn't really surprise me. I mean, you know, pe- people are surprised to learn, for example, you know, my own students and other students that that Lincoln didn't, you know, he believed that all the races were created equal in the sense that they were endowed with inalienable rights, but he didn't believe all the races were equal. Uh, not for a second, right? Um, and so, so I, I think that this is a—it's an extremely—it's it, a—it's a very good and, and a kind of—it's uh, a—it's it's a very good and thought-provoking part of the book. Go ahead. I'm sorry, well, I cut you off. Well, it's what I was going to say is—is is that many of these 19th-century race ideas get intensified with the scientific sensibilities and modern sensibilities of the late 19th century mm-hmm. when they're looking to modern biology and modern ideas about evolution and, and uh, the latest in social science to create these very uh, harsh ideas about about racial class, racial caste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the populace were part of that process. Yeah. They yeah. were not separate from them. They were, they were innovators. They considered themselves innovators on the, on race relations. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's an absolutely fascinating point to kind of turn around your head. I guess one way to explain to students that hadn't occurred to me until you mentioned it uh, or or um until uh until we started talking about it to explain to students and people that, that racism could uh, appear progressive would be to draw an analogy uh to uh the way people thought about homosexuality say in the 19, even as as late as the 1970s in some parts of the nation where homosexuality was thought to be a kind of illness and something that needed to be treated so 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 in that sense a, a kind of not exactly homophobia but but um an attempt to, to to help quote unquote homosexuals was thought to be progressive and now we don't believe this at all uh that that in fact it's, it's a 
those ideas are um, a kind of abomination to us. And it's happened in in my lifetime, basically. So so and and in a way, it happened in their lifetime, too. I mean, by the the 1940s, I think people had a very different, especially after the Holocaust and that business um, and during the civil rights movement, they thought very differently about it. But I think it's always important to try to to try to think like they did uh, to understand the way we should we should classify them. And I, and I think your book does an absolutely terrific, a terrific job of that. But those things are hard to read. They really are. I mean, I was reading your book yeah. and I was kind of cringing at some of the things that they said and did. Um, yeah. But, but you know, the truth is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and denying it really isn't probably a good idea. So yeah. they, they, were, they were much more progressive in many other ways. Uh, one is they love science. Um, yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, it, there's a very interesting thing about that, and, and, and maybe this is a little bit of a, of a long answer, but much of the thinking about populism is shaped, or how Americans think about populism is shaped by the Scopes trial. When I've told people that I'm writing a book about populism, they say, oh, the Scopes trial. And what they mean when you say that is, is of course, in 1925, John Scopes was put on trial for teaching evolution in Dayton, Tennessee. And there was a trial in which the two most prominent attorneys uh, shaped these sort of culture wars of the time. On the one side, there was William Jennings Bryan for the prosecution, who was arguing for the infallibility of the Bible, essentially. And, and, uh, uh, and he was associated broadly with sort of rural reform in the sense that he was the 19 uh, I'm sorry the 1896 presidential candidate on a platform of printing silver inflation that the farmers wanted to use for the reform wing of the Democratic Party he was never a populist but he's by various reasons associated with populist because of his advocacy of silver currency and other reforms and on the other side was, of course, Clarence Darrow, who was the urbane Chicago attorney, uh, uh, sort of the Johnny Cochran of his day, who was advocating for the defense of, of John Scopes, and he was skeptical, agnostic, scientific, materialist, arguing against uh, uh, fundamentalist religion. So people have taken uh, this trial as sort of a specter, as a way to look at, uh, at, as a window to look at populism. Oh, the populists are the fundamentalist Christians for rural, uh, rural religion, and, and Darrow represents, uh, the urban, uh, skepticism. Well, the truth of the matter is, in the 1890s, Clarence Darrow was a populist. He campaigned among Illinois farmers. He was an important populist in the state of Illinois. Brian was never a populist. And if you look at what was really going on in terms of of science and religion and populist thought, many populists came from Protestant households and thought about uh, thought of themselves as Christians. Many others didn't. But they were all influenced by the scientific ethos of the day, by Darwin, Herbert Spencer. These were all people that populists were talking about all the time. And many of them considered, you know, the, the center of moral politics was whether it was scientific, rational, 
uh, thought. And, and that's an important thing to think about, that, that the late 19th century, uh, you simply can't write the culture wars of the 20th or 21st century back into the late 19th century and have it work. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's another part of the book that's, I think, important. Mm-hmm. And now, did, did, they had some rather progressive, what we would call progressive views on um, educational reform, too, didn't they? Well, it, it, they they considered education essential. I think I mentioned it earlier that in many, many ways you could think of their movement as a as populism as a, as a vast rural university. Uh, much of it, you know, it's probably the biggest adult education program in, in the history of the United States. Uh, it was a vast rural university that were taught wide variety of subjects from science to history to finance, economics. Uh, but they also believed that the government had a major role to play in terms of educating the citizenry. And in the South, it was the, it was the populace who were the main engine of the broad development of the common school, of public schools. Now, they already existed strongly in the, more strongly in the North, but in the South, they had a very tentative hold, even in the 1880s and 90s, and the populace strengthened that hold tremendously. They also um, uh, were big advocates of strengthening the public universities. Uh, uh, higher education was a very important goal. Now, they, they, they wanted public universities to serve rural and other interests, so rural research stations and other things from the, from the uh, agricultural research stations from the public universities. But they were big uh, pro, uh, Proponents of, of public universities, uh, uh, they would they they, they advocated uh, progressive taxation. You know, they were they they introduced the progressive income tax into American politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the key things they wanted those taxes for was to build up uh, the state universities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm studying at one today, and you teach at one, don't you? That's right. There we go. Right. All right. I'm, right. I'm not a populist, but I I certainly appreciate what they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's very important today in California. I don't know if anyone is paying attention to California, but California is is in this, this tremendous financial crisis where they're defunding the public schools. Uh, it's, it's horrendous. How the public schools or the public universities are in in free fall. Yeah, yeah, and it's because of 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 it's partly because of referendum that have been adopted by California voters. And the interesting thing is the populists were also the ones who initiated, who brought in the initiative and referendum or direct democracy into American politics. Wow, I didn't didn't know that. Yeah. No, I think that, uh, Charles, I can say with some confidence that everyone is thinking about California right now because California is handing out IOUs right and left. (laughs) That's right. And the populists are spinning in their grave about these, about this, uh, about the, fate of public education in the state. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I heard a report on NPR about it, and I, you have my condolences. It sounds really, um, it sounds like a very, very bad situation. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, let's, let's move on to another topic. We mentioned this very briefly, but uh, what did the populace think about uh, incorporating women into the political process and, and more generally about uh, uh, the women's, uh, or the woman's role? Let's put it that way. You have to think back into the 19th century, the late 19th century. There, there's all the major institutions in American life put women in the back, uh, uh, in the in the background. Um, even in the churches, there are very few churches where women 
have a right to vote or right to serve as key officers. One of the things that the farmers' alliances and the other constituencies of the, of the populists do is they abolish those barriers. And these organizations become a great place for women to become lecturers, editors, prominent people. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands of women joined. Of course, there are famous women like Mary Elizabeth Lees of Kansas, who supposedly said, uh, uh, raised less corn and more hell. She probably never said that, <laughs> but that's, but, but she was one of the most famous, but there were a wide variety of, of women who were key players in this movement. And, uh, they had a number of ambitions in going to this movement. One of them was, uh, they believed that women had to have economic independence, that, that the People's Party, the populace, would be a vehicle for advancing women's economic position in terms of educational and employment opportunities. And I think that was probably the foundational issue on which they all of the populist women agreed was, was that. Uh, many populist women also used the movement as a way to gain the vote, women's suffrage. And especially in the West, in the Midwest, the People's Party was the vehicle for women's suffrage for, for a, decade or, a decade or so there. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, where does the women's suffrage, one of the first states that, that give the vote to women, uh, is Colorado, which, which it did so when it had a populist government there. Kansas similarly. Mm -hmm. So it, the women's, women's movement looked to the People's Party as the most advanced party on women's rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kansas had the first elected female senator. Yep. Uh, 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 her name is escaping me. It was uh, um, Nancy Landon Kassebaum. There you go. So very yep. progress people don't think of Kansas as progressive, but there you go. Um, oh, Kansas <laughs> was very progressive. They, Kansas had... Uh, uh, women officers up and down the state in the 1890s. Yeah, uh, that is true. I, you know, it's, it's funny because it's similar with Iowa. People don't think of Iowa as very progressive, but it's been pretty astoundingly progressive. In, 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 in um, I'm surrounded by historians who constantly point this out. But Iowa, yep. Iowa has led the nation. We're a little bit boosterish here. The, right. So let's talk a little bit about something else that, that fascinated me. That the, the populists were big organizers. They wanted people to be in unions and confederations and uh, 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 syndicates and these kinds of things. And this does, this does resonate to someone who studies European history because the Europeans were all about this as well. I mean, I, I know that you know, in the late 19th century, Emile Durkheim wrote a book that claimed that all modern societies would be arranged around what are basically unions. Uh, yep. and, and that he was wrong, but um, this is what he thought. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the way they saw this sort of organization is very modern. There, there, there are multiple sides of that. The first side of it, it was sort of economic warfare. Uh, they looked at they looked at they looked at American society and they said all other uh, business interests are well organized, except the farmer, except labor. Uh, the railroads are organized. The the uh, wholesalers are organized. Uh, the banks are organized. The, 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 even the cattle raisers are organized, but not the farmer. And so the original impulse is that is to organize on a business basis. That was how they thought about it. Mm -hmm. we, we, you frequently hear about 
you think of populists as trust busters. Uh, you know, they, they hated uh, uh, the oil trust, for example, Standard Oil. Standard Oil, yeah. But it, and they wanted to break it up. Well, actually, the people who were trust busters were not populists. Populists didn't want to break up Standard Oil. They wanted to emulate Standard Oil. They said, we need to organize as well as Standard Oil has mm-hmm. in order to protect our interests. Mm-hmm. So they had, they, they're not for small economy. They believed in large economy as much as anybody, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. or more so. So part of it is economic. The other thing is they were concerned about social isolation. And there's a lot of dis- de- debates among historians about how socially isolated farmers were. But populists had no debate on this question. They considered farm life dismal, dreary, <laughs> lonely, horrendous. The, the words they would use is, is isolated prisons. Mm-hmm. That's how they described their farms. Mm-hmm. They had very little romantic notion about how wonderful it was to live out in the middle of your 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 wheat field. Yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think many farmers do. I come from a line of them, and they don't. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's t- t- to use a bad metaphor. It's a tough row to hoe. Get it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it is. And it was a very <laughs> lonely life. Yeah, and so there was a lot of discussion about building association to break down that loneliness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that. that you, the, certainly, that that is that is a very good thing. The the the. But they were also they're also involved in labor unions. That that is urban labor unions, weren't they? Yes. Yeah. And that's and that's a whole other side of it. If you look at if you look at populism in whether it's from Illinois or Colorado, a lot of it is urban or urban movements or working class movements. And here there's a distinction because the strongest populist force were coal miners and railway workers neither of which were necessarily urban, and many of them lived near farmers. Uh, uh, but they were a labor movement, and they were organized as workers and, and sympathetic to the populace for a variety of, of mm-hmm. reasons. They had common cause. Mm-hmm. But they, didn't, they, they weren't terribly uh, successful. Um, were they very successful in urban areas? I, I don't know. I... Well, it depends on how you think measure success. I mean, here in San Francisco, the populace elected a, a Adolf Sutro as a populist mayor in 1894. Uh, in Denver, a populist urban coalition sort of takes over politics there. Uh, it's a very important reform force. Uh, similarly, in a number of cities from in Ohio and Illinois and elsewhere, they were an important reform coalition in urban America. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sutro, that's Sutro Tower. The Sutro Tower. There you go. All right. He was a a populist mayor. I I did not know that, and I I imagine there aren't very many people that do. He ran, he he wanted to turn the streetcar system from a monopoly of Southern Pacific into a publicly owned municipal streetcar. Did he do do that? uh, I'm not exactly sure how. Uh I can't tell you how successful that was, but that was the campaign. Okay, Okay, good. So um, let let me ask you this. it's been 150 years now since a, a third party stuck, if I'm not incorrect, in the United States. That's um, right. And uh, so uh, the populists are in, in good company in the sense that they rose and, and fell. Uh, yes. Let's talk a little bit about um, that process. Uh, w- 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 we've talked already about uh, how they rose and on what platform. Why, why did they fall? Why they fall? One thing to think about is the tremendous institutional obstacles that a third party faces. 
And the populace could never do well when they faced serious competition between when the when Democrats and Republicans competed vigorously, the populace didn't have much of a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just to go back to California as an example, in 1894, the populace gained some 25% of the vote in the state, but they gained almost nothing in the state legislature because because of the uh, discrepancy uh, in a winner-take-all election system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's what happened. The real downfall it, from state to state was this. They never did well anywhere uh, where there was strong competition between the two Democrats and Republicans because mm-hmm. of that dynamic. They only could really be successful where the whole opposition would throw themselves behind one, of the, one or the other party, and that's when the populace could win, whether mm-hmm. it was Kansas or or, or uh, North Carolina or or Colorado. Mm-hmm. Did, did, now, let, me, let me interject just one question. Did they ever go for a, a, a kind of proportional voting scheme? <laughs> America, yes. Americans don't, yes. n- never understand such things that, and yes. will never accept them, but, but yeah, did they like proportional voting? Uh, there was a section of people who did discuss proportional voting. Uh, you remember, you have to remember how crude things were there. People didn't even elect senators in those days. Yeah, no, was, right. yeah. and, and the populace campaigned vigorously for election reforms such as direct election of senators. Yeah. But even the secret ballot uh, was something, it eventually the secret ballot ended up hurting them. But, but just the corruption of the ballot, the lack of a secret ballot, was the big issue for the populace. Yeah. Um, so, so our modern-day balloting didn't work. Now, the, the real crisis happened when William James Bryan was nominated in Chicago in 1896 to be the presidential candidate of the Democratic Party. And Bryan represented the form wing of the Democratic Party. He represented the free coining of silver uh, and other reforms favorable to what the populace also wanted. As the populace were in a, were in a fix, should we throw away our vote essentially and stick to our principles and, vote, and put up a, a populist candidate or should we or should we line up behind Brian? Mm-hmm. And this caused a, a, a sharp, sharp debate and division within the populist camp. And These were debates of the don't throw away your vote kind? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. You, what does it mean to vote for Nader in yeah. 2000? Yeah, just ki- that's what it that's kills every third party. That's right. Yeah. And and it was there was, a, there was a very sharp factional warfare. The end result was that the leadership did endorse Bryan, uh, and I would say that probably the majority of the membership did as well. Uh, and and the net result was the populace never regained their strength. There was a sort of a, a rump movement that lasted for another decade or so, but but uh, it was over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty common pattern though with third parties, isn't it? I'm not again, I haven't studied it, but. Yeah, especially in presidential campaigns, is that there's a sense that you're going to throw away your vote if you vote for a yeah. third party, and that's the end of the third um, party movement. Uh, yeah. Let, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this question. What, what is the modern legacy? What is the legacy of, the, of populism or the People's Party, as I think we should probably call it, uh, uh, today? Well, one thing to think about is that it was successful enough that both Republicans and Democrats needed to take chunks of the populist program and endorse them as their own uh, in order to win elections from that time on. 
uh, for the next through the progressive era. So a lot of the progressive era reforms that we take for granted, whether it's the women's vote or whether it's uh, uh, the income tax mm-hmm. or uh, 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 government uh, support for agriculture or the public school systems or uh, a lot of these reforms that they advocated, including flexible currency, all were initiated in that epoch and mm-hmm. become part of uh, the political culture. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think you can really turn around and think about the modern American state and uh, without thinking about the populist contribution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's a, that's a convincing case because when you you know as and I certainly hope people read the book as you, as you read it there are many things in it which you can definitely see in the in the so-called progressive era that were basically co-opted by the Republicans and the Democrats and other groups of of people that uh, that that seem to have kind of robbed the, the populists uh, cookie jar in, in this right. way but I think that happens a lot with um yeah. with parties such as these did, did um you say it was a, that there was kind of a rump movement after um, the election. Um, it, was there anything left of it at all, or did they just close up shop? Or where are their archives now and that kind of thing, I guess? Um, well, they, they, they didn't close up shop. There was, there was attempts. Tom Watson of Georgia and a few others kept the, kept, the, uh, kept the name alive and published some newspapers into the early 20th century. Um, I personally don't find that literature very interesting. It's basically, you know, uh, it's basically there's no more mass following, and it's sort of uh, it's a very odd movement. It's sort of a sect by that time. Mm-hmm. It, it takes the form of a, of a very sectarian small group. In terms of in terms of uh, the archives, uh, a lot of the a lot of the major works on this. The leaders left a lot of literature. Oh, one thing to think about this, this is a vast educational campaign. It left tremendous amounts of inexpensive literature, mm-hmm. uh, vast quantities. And unfortunately, some of it, most of it, is, is rotting on, on paper that's not acid-free yeah. and is dying. And so anyone who can get into an archive and look at it, it might be your last chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of it, a lot of the rest of it, especially by the leadership, is is pu- is published and readily available in libraries. There's microfilm of some of the major uh, uh, populist newspapers, which was tremendously informative. Uh, so, so I just got back from from Texas when looking at some of these archives and at the at uh, at, at the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, but the major archives of in the in the South and Midwest have. Uh, great deal of information. Did you spend any time in Kansas? I did, in the Kansas Historical Society. It's just a, a fantastic resource. Well, where is that exactly? I'm ashamed to in say. In Topeka. In Topeka, that's yes. Topeka. Exactly. And it's, that's, that's one of the, it's a, it's a jewel of an archive. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, a great resource for anybody interested in this. Mm-hmm. Look, why don't you um, close the show by telling us um, what your final, or your final, I always say that, what, what your next project is. Next project. Well, in my next project, uh, I'm interested in, in in late 19th century politics. I'm also interested in in late 19th century uh, ideas about morality. Uh, one way to think about this is the late 19th century was swept by these powerful reform movements. The populace is just one of them, but others included prohibition campaigns and the prohibition movement. 
the labor movement, the Knights of Labor, and vast campaigns for labor rights, uh, women's rights, civil rights for black people. Uh, and one of the striking features of all of these movements is their moral fervor. Uh, they all believed in that this was moral justice, moral righteousness characterized all of these great movements. And I'm working on a project to examine the relationship between these, the, the politics and the morality. What is, what is, what is guiding, uh, these moral politics? So, mm-hmm. so I think that it's going to come up with some surprising answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go, but I think it's going to be, uh, uh, surprising. And I think it's going to say some important things about how moral politics uh, is so very different in the late 20th and early 21st century. Mm-hmm. These are not. This is not continuity. But mm-hmm. things have really changed, mm-hmm. and and that's what interests me. Mm-hmm. Well, that that sounds fascinating. And and when you, I, I like open-ended projects like that where you don't really know what you're going to find. I never really know what I'm going to find when I start something yeah. new. I always think yeah. I do, but I never do. Yeah. I'm calling this project moral politics because yeah. I'm going to find where these things how these things join up and, and where they lead. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds fascinating, and I hope that you come on the show the, when you uh, finish it, which will be in two weeks. No, that's it, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, it's a joke I've made before. Well, anyway, uh, Charles Postal, thank you very much for being on the show. The book is The Populist Vision. It's the winner of the Bancroft Prize, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to Charles about it. And, um, Charles, uh, please um, have a good weekend, okay? Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Charles Postel about his new book, The Populist Vision. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.